Turn it in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, if you would, please. I liked Alistair Begg's title for this section, particularly verses 8 to 12, or 8 to 10. He called it Running on the Gas of the Gospel. Uh, I, of course, think that's way too short. So, uh, reflecting both back two weeks ago to captive to empty deceits, or now what we'll be seeing this week, filled up in and with Christ. We're about one-third of the way through the letter, and we have worked our way through the first big Roman numeral area of Christ's preeminence declared, and have now just begun to dip our toes into the second section that runs all of chapter 2, and a little bit into chapter 3 of Christ's preeminence, and I've added, and sufficiency, defended, particularly defended against harmful distortions. And part of what we noted a couple of weeks ago was that those who lead Christ followers away from Christ often do so, not blatantly, but subtly. So subtly, notice back in chapter 2, verse 4, that they delude us. And in chapter 2, verse 8, that they deceive us, often one thought at a time. Incredible onslaught of philosophies, verse 8 is telling us, humanistic messages, voices, arguments, influences, pressures, accusations, and just natural tendencies of the human heart to look for answers in something, someplace, but all too often not in Christ or according to Christ as verse 8 ends. Those can be secular ways of thinking or they can come from religious systems as well. Someone's book, someone's talk, someone's podcast, someone's website, someone's blog, someone's tweet, so many voices that can sound really good, really persuasive, and feel perhaps like that's the answer I've been looking for. But all prove over time to me much less help, much less help than what Christ offers us. David Garland sums this challenge well. Every generation of Christians faces new assaults on their faith, but these challenges are only a serious problem for those who are not thoroughly grounded and growing. And I would remind you of verse 7 back in chapter 2. Established, rooted, built up in their faith. Those who are uncertain in their faith can easily fall victim to half-truths, misrepresentations, Pious fables, our word these days is narrative, and outright lies. They also become vulnerable depending on their personal inclinations to anything that may pass itself off as wisdom that appears, if you look at chapter 2, verse 23, to be more chic, more cut and dried, more profound, more esoteric. So people, including even those raised in traditional Christian homes, are often looking elsewhere for novel approaches and more trendy strategies on how to cope with life. 
So Paul, in one verse, verse 8, warns us about being taken captive or being kidnapped or being hijacked or being taken hostage by any kind of possible philosophy, tradition, reasoning, elemental thinking that is bombarding us. So what he is going to do in verses 9 through 15 is give a response to this that in essence says what MacArthur points out, that because Christ is sufficient, all the evidence in 9 through 15, there's no need for the writings of any cult, philosophy, or psychology to supplement the Bible or to supplant it or for us to try to syncretize teachings from the world and teachings from Christ and somehow think blended together that they will work better than just Christ. So to protect us, Paul is going to describe more what Christ's death, resurrection, and indwelling presence mean. And he's going to do so with some very vivid language. We'll see circumcision and baptism today and death And then next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll see the canceling of our record, the nailing to the cross, the triumphing over enemies, the shaming of them, just to name a few. These are not new gospel truths, not told about anywhere else in his word, but they're expressed uniquely, described in a fresh way, probably to try and grab attention a little bit, perhaps to help us people see Christ and the gospel in a better, bigger, bolder, more powerful way. And I would assert that what God, through Paul, wanted for the Colossian church is no different 2,000 years later than what God wants through this same writing by Paul to be for First Street Bible Church. He wants us to be, using Robert Thune's term, gospel-gripped so gripped by the gospel, nothing else can take us captive, if you want to use that word play, think of it that way. Or as Paul Tripp puts it, thinking more communally as a whole church, God wants us to be a thoroughly gospelized community. So that's what we have in verses 9 through 15 that's going to take us two Sundays to work our way through. Not commands. We had the command back in verse 8, don't let anyone take you captive. And now the why, just gospel stuff that should help us to do what we were told or described of us at the end of verse 7 in chapter 2 that will make us even more abound in thanksgiving for who Christ is, for what he has done, and for what implications that has for our lives. Please note as we read this section that in him that little prepositional phrase shows up in verse 6 verse 7, and then three times in today's section, 9, 10, and 11, and then in next week's section, verse 15. And with him shows up twice in verse 12. Please follow as we read this short but very powerful opening half of the answer that keeps us from being captivated by the world. For in him, verse 9, in Christ the Lord, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him 
who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, in Christ, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Matt Papa says here, Paul is speaking about the gospel. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the blazing center, the cross, and that will really be evident next week. He's saying, this is where you see the glory. You see it in the pursuit. You see it in Jesus. If you want to see some of God's glory, you can look at a sunset. But if you really want to see it, look at Jesus. And then he quotes familiar lines we've talked about and we'll talk about again today. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He is the word of God, the revelation of his heart. What the universe, the heavens, could not reveal about God and his attributes, Jesus does in spectacular, blinding array. In Jesus, we see the glory of God in stunning clarity and brilliance. And this is the sweetest gift of the gospel. Father, what a blessing, what a privilege, what a joy this morning to open up your word and to look at the Son of God in radiance and glory and what he has done. Perhaps in language we don't fully relate to, but God, despite that, would you give us eyes that see and understand and grasp and fall in love with and adore and thank you more of the qualities and attributes and works of your Son, Jesus Christ, and of you, our Father. Bless this time and change our worldview to be more focused on Christ as a result, I pray in your name. Amen. So, verses 9 and 10, which we'll title, The Answer to the Danger of Verse 8 is to focus fully on the incredible fullness, intentionally used twice, of Christ or of being in Christ, or we could say the end of verse 8 of living and thinking according to Christ. So I think there's a word play here. If you look back at verse 8, toward the beginning, you'll see the word empty. And now if you see in verses 9 and 10, twice it'll talk about being full, filled in fullness with everything that we need. So the idea is you're either going to pursue things that are empty, unsatisfactory, will never ultimately help you, or you're going to be filled evermore with the blessings and the riches and the treasures of Christ. And I would go back to verse 4 of chapter 2 and remind us that all of the treasures of wisdom and understanding and knowledge are in Christ. So verses 9 and 10 to break down today's four verses. 9 and 10 focus on who Christ is, critical truths. And in the middle of those two statements, we get a blessed result for our own lives. And then in verses 11 and 12, now it turns to what Christ Jesus has really done internally in us so we understand that better, so we're not captivated by the empty deceits of the world. So verse 9, first of all, two critical truths as sandwich ends uh, about Christ, and in the middle is the blessing for believers. First of all, we're told again 
repeated almost verbatim that in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And part of the point is, even though you're looking at a frail human body in Jesus of Nazareth, the fullness of the deity dwells in him. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 15, we're already told he's the image, he's the reflection, he's the manifestation of the invisible God. Verse 19, all the fullness of God, same kind of language, was pleased to dwell in him. Now in Hebrew, also in Hebrews 1, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Paul presses again, Christ is not a separate entity from God or emanating down from God, but is in every way fully God, not a different deity, not a lesser deity, not parts of God, but all God. A couple of quotes from John 10 and then John 14, where Jesus pressed this home. And in John 14, it's right after I go to prepare a place for you. It's the Last Supper. He's just washed their feet. And then Philip asks him that question about, uh, show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus very, it seems, sharply responds, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen the Father, who has seen me, has seen the Father. You can't say, show us the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And it's nothing less. The only difference is, one's invisible. Paul says of God the Father, he dwells in unapproachable light. It is such radiant holiness. But the Son has taken on a very visible bodily manifestation but it has not in any way lessened him about who he is. This is all pressing on the sufficiency of Christ for all the answers for everything that verse 8 isn't going to provide any lasting true reality. So I would just want to press here, especially for you who are younger, however you define that. But I want to say especially to those of you in the home yet, that this is massively important. If you are not strong, absolutely resolute, utterly solid on this truth and reality, you are far more susceptible to the lies and distortions about Christ, whether that comes from a cult, a false religion, or from the world in any kind of way. Other voices will tell you all kinds of deviations from this truth. Hold fast to it. From there, then, the word filled plays out in a second way. We have the fullness of deity, and now we have the fullness of him in us. In other words, in Christ Jesus, all believers have been brought his fullness, have been given that fullness. Not that he makes us a God, as in the first part of the verse, but filling us as in there is nothing lacking. He is not parceled out. You don't get more of him at a certain point or when you're particularly feeling close to him or when you're older. Like those who trust in him, those who are born again are filled in him with everything that they need for life. Now the New American Standard translates this filled in him as you have been made complete. MacArthur on this just reminds us of the pre-Christ condition of man because of the fall. 
We're in a sad state of incompleteness, he says. He points out we're spiritually incomplete because we're out of fellowship with God. We're morally incomplete because we're living outside of his will and word. And we are mentally incomplete because we do not know the ultimate truth of Christ. So in thinking of this, it is showing this massive reversal in all of those dimensions for believers to be fully supplied with Christ or the way that Peter, the apostle Peter, wrote near the beginning of his second letter is his, Christ, verse two right above that that you don't see on the screen, but in your Bibles, talks about the Lord Jesus Christ and then says, that divine power, the power of Christ that is both in us and that we access because we are in him, has granted, has given, has graced us, has blessed us with all, everything that could possibly pertain, that is important, that is necessary, to life and godliness. It comes through knowing him. It comes through his precious and great promises. But the result of it is God wants us to become partakers of that divine nature, to enjoy the nature of Christ as fully and as possibly, as much as we possibly can in this life. So as Kent Hughes just simply asks, if you are full of him, how can you want or chase after or come to believe anything else? John, at the opening of his gospel, that begins with, in the beginning was the word, talking about Christ, one of his concluding declarations about him in verse 16 is, for from Christ, and notice the word, fullness, filled. So John and Paul are using similar imagery here to speak of it. From that fullness of Christ, from the all-sufficient fullness of Christ, we've all received grace upon grace. In other words, as endlessly, as faithfully, as fully and regularly as waves crest upon the shores, so Christ provides his grace for us, for everything we may need in life. Douglas Moo, all that we can know or experience of God is found in our relationship with him. John Calvin, those therefore who do not rest satisfied with Christ alone do injury to God in two ways. For besides detracting from the glory of God by desiring something about his perfecting, above his perfecting, they also are ungrateful inasmuch as they seek elsewhere what they already have in Christ. If you are not strong, absolutely solid on this truth, you are susceptible to the temptation to look all kinds of other places on this planet for help. And then third in verse 10, and finally, more of the power of the one who fills us is that he is the head of all rule and authority. He is the greatest power. He is not an inferior being to any other ruler or authority, nor are they even equal to him in any way. He is Lord of lords, King of kings, above all, everything that exists on earth, everything of rule and authority in the spiritual realm. You're gonna see the same language in verse 15 as you see here at the end of verse 10. 
in both sections, Paul finishes with describing the power, rule, authority that Christ has over any and all other powers and means uh, that we might submit ourselves to. So part of the point is there is no other power or authority for us to submit ourselves to, for us to be controlled by other than by Christ. So here's one way that we can summarize these verses. It's just Jesus. In Christ, all we get is all we get from God. Nothing more, nothing other. He is the answer to our every need. Does that disappoint you? Were you hoping for something newer or easier or cooler? Sorry, it's just Jesus. He is who God is and all God gives us. And I would add, all that God wants to give us comes in and through him. And then later Garrett Dawson says, God has nothing else to give us than what he gives us in Jesus. But getting Jesus is getting everything. Now Paul takes us in verses 11 and 12 to unpacking what Christ has done. And this is a very wordy heading. I worked on this and worked on this on trying to capture briefly what verses 11 and 12 are doing. And I did it almost as long as the verses themselves. But here's the point. Part of that fullness that we're filled in is that what was bodily experienced by Christ, death, burial, resurrection, or if you want to use this language, circumcision, death, resurrection, or burial, resurrection, all that was experienced bodily by Christ, Christ does spiritually in the heart of all those that he saves. Notice, and I think this is really cool, if you were here last Sunday as Chris walked us through 1 Corinthians 15 and identified the three things that are of the utmost importance for people to believe and know and live by is the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. We're gonna get all three of those again. I realize that verse 11 is different wording than the death, but later in Colossians, Paul's gonna use shorthand and just say, you've died. But here he's trying to describe it in a very graphic way. So different wording from 1 Corinthians 15, different church body being written to, same author, Paul, same Holy Spirit, different year that it's written, different situation that it's written for, but the exact same importance. Only now, it's how it's actually played out, applied, done, worked by the powerful working of God in the heart of us who believe. Now, not easy, and we're not gonna spend a lot of time here, not easy to understand why does he all of a sudden go to circumcision? And why is it not mentioned again? Like even if you look at verse 16, you'll see that he's gonna warn about other law things like foods, drinks, festivals, Sabbath. But he doesn't mention circumcision again. There's no other mention. So there is possibility that the Jews in Colossae, Colossae is a Gentile community, but the Jews, the Judaizers within that community are still emphasizing that circumcision is a necessary sign of people belonging to God and that keeping the Mosaic law besides the sacrifices will make them even more spiritual. 
So, Paul may be addressing that without actually saying that's the issue that's here and pointing out that it's not physical bodily acts that one still has to carry out that sanctify us and mature us, but it's spiritual acts already completed in the heart of us by Christ. I think the other thing that's perhaps more likely going on here is that verses 11 to 15 are vivid evidence of verses 9 to 10 being true and valid. Notice how 10 and 15 both end with the same thought. So this would be saying Paul is elaborating on how our fullness of Christ has been accomplished in us already that we've already spiritually participated with him in circumcision or death, in burial, baptism, and in resurrection being raised from the dead in the spiritual realm. So let's work our way through this, seeking to understand this the best by God's grace and help that we can. In him, in Christ, also, not only were you filled, you were circumcised. And then immediately, a clarifying It's a circumcision made without human hands. So it's a surgery, it's an operation that Christ does that's done on the heart that transforms it. It's not an operation on the body. Um, So, and you'll notice in verse 13, he's going to refer to it one other time as uncircumcision describes people who are not in Christ, who have not come to faith in him but rather are on those who are apart from him. So this wording of putting off or cutting off the body of the flesh, and if you think of a literal, physical, bodily circumcision, without being grossed out by that, it's the old, unbelieving self, the sinful nature, and the body of sin that we were completely enveloped in. And the point here is that's been cut off to be discarded. It's not helpful. In fact, it's detrimental to the life that God wants you to live. So Christ has done a surgery in your heart. And part of what he's pressing on here, if you look down at verse 23 of chapter 2, you'll see the flesh there again. And Paul's point at the end of this whole thing is concluding that controlling one's body, whether it's a circumcision or abstinence from foods or partaking of certain rituals, whatever severity to the body we do, thinking it makes us more spiritual in God's eyes, cannot actually stop the indulgence of the flesh. Only Christ and his powerful cutting away work in the heart can do that. So shorthand for this, as we've already noted, Colossians 3.3, you've died or where Paul writes more autobiographically, I have been crucified, I've been killed, I've been, we could say fairly, circumcised with Christ. In other words, that work has been done by him. So Spurgeon says here of this thought, the best preaching is we preach Christ crucified. The best living is We are crucified or circumcised with Christ in our hearts. The best man is a crucified man. And then he gives some illustrations. Here's one of them or applications. 
The more we live beholding our Lord's unutterable griefs and understanding how he has fully put away our sin, the more holiness or the putting away of sin it will actually produce in us. That's how that works. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Get close to Christ and carry the remembrance of him about you from day to day, and you'll do right and royal deeds. The last phrase, just to address, in case it's bothering some of you, is an odd one, tricky one to work out in English, by the circumcision of Christ. Some believe that there's a possibility here that it's speaking of a circumcision being applied to Christ in the sense of his human body, the Jesus of Nazareth body that died on the cross was an unglorified body, and he was raised, we see, very different bodily with a new glorified body. So just showing the distinction of cutting away the old on the cross and rising with the new. Uh, but I think most of us would lean still toward it's the work, the operation, the transformative process that Christ does in us immediately when we come to him in faith and repentance. Verse 12 just continues this thought. Adding now, you've been buried with him in baptism. And the burial has the idea of something that's dead discarded, done away with. You're going to put it under the ground. So it rots away completely to utterly nothing but dust. Now, why this added phrase of in baptism? It's, it's a wording that Paul likes to use, and you can see some other, and Jesus used as well. So baptism often depicts, as we noted at the beginning of this before we baptized Dexter, it depicts a cleansing, a washing of us. But it can also depict a death. So if you just think of it as the, the, the individual standing there dry depicts the old nature, the old self. Then it goes under the water, is buried fully into the water, fully submerged in Christ, we might say, and is raised up a new and completely different being, alive in a whole different way than one when one went under the water. So Jesus talked to John and James when they were asking for the preferred seats on either side of him, and just, he asked them, are you ready to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And then Paul, in Romans 8, perhaps some of you immediately thought of that, where he poses, shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? And then, by all means, no. How can we who died to sin still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, fully immersed into him, were baptized into his death? And then he relates it to verse four. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And then, peeking ahead for what's coming in at the end of verse 12 in Colossians 2, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And that's where tw verse 12 of Colossians 2 then goes. For we're also raised with him. But notice the emphasis that it's through faith and it's faith in, an interesting wording, it doesn't say in the person of Christ, but in the powerful working of God 
who raised him, Christ, from the dead. So all of this is capturing that we have died with Christ uniting us in his death. We've been buried, Christ uniting us in that burial or that baptism. And we have been raised in our hearts with a new nature, Christ uniting us with that. So Garland says, baptism is not only the grave for the old self, where it gets discarded, but it's the birthplace, if you think of just Christ's birth in this Advent, it's the birthplace of the new as one comes out of the waters. So, uh, Galatians 2.20, let's carry that thought out. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I or the guy who's lived this whole life before I met Christ, it's no longer that I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh or in this body, I live, key point, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Douglas Moo, no longer are we dominated by the powers of the old era, sin, death, and the flesh. We're now ruled by the righteousness, life, grace, and the spirit. A couple of interesting things here very quickly. At least I think they're interesting. Powerful working. Look back at chapter 1, verse 29. Almost the last words of chapter 1. This isn't the first time that Paul uses this. Okay? So he keep, he's emphasizing, notice on both sides of this do everything focused on Christ and according to Christ and what you've been filled in Christ. And that's because there's a very powerful working within us that Christ is doing that allows us, even when we're struggling on the outside, to have all that Christ wants to do be accomplished. And the other thing that we noted that's interesting is it's the only time, somebody said, that faith in the working of God rather than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't actually, we're not saved by just believing that God is powerfully working. It has to be through Christ. But here he's emphasizing, I think, that we have to have faith in how powerfully God will work so that we don't turn to earthly things and human solutions and answers for that. We can't sanctify ourselves. It's way too hard. It takes the powerful working of God to transform our hearts. Brief application on that. I see and talk to and know of, not just in this body, but in Christendom, in Lincoln, a lot of people in long-term counseling. I had somebody told me they've had decades of counseling, struggling to fix any number of hundreds of ills and pains and sins and issues taking years and years and yet seemingly making so little headway. Perhaps those are individuals are relying too much on human philosophizing and analyzing and psychologizing and all the kinds of things and plans to work out how we're going to help our hurts and our pain and our sins but they're not according to Christ. They aren't pointing us toward him. They're pointing us toward fixing us ourselves. So is that possibly you? Could you be trying to get better 
by taking a placebo, by taking the wrong medicine. But hey, it's medicine. Human medicine that's so weak, so incapable of changing the human heart can never be taken over Christ's divine surgery and medicinal work that's truly powerful. Back to Spurgeon's uh, quote. I read part of it earlier. If you remember, nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Get close to Christ. Right after that, he then says this. Come, let us slay sin, for Christ was slain. Come, let us bury all our pride, for Christ was buried. Come, let us rise to newness of life, for Christ has risen. Let us be united with our crucified Lord in his one great object, to live and die with him. And then every action of our lives will be very beautiful. Closing thought. Might be the earliest in the service the sermon has ever ended. But I think it's significant. It'll probably be January before we get back to Colossians after next Sunday. But verses 16, 18, and 20 through 23 are going to give more deceitful confusions that are not according to Christ. Verses 15 of chapter 2 and 17 and 19 will all point us to Christ. They're all part of the answers. Each time that Paul says, beware of this, he says, do this instead with Christ. Beware of this, here's the answer in Christ. But I want to put forth to you that there's a very unfortunate chapter break. I really think the first verses of chapter 3 are like the grand conclusion of the issues of chapter 2. And here's my theory. Do you see the ending of verse 10? And we've been raised with Christ? Do you see the opening condition at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1? If you've been raised with Christ. So there's the foundational question. Are you trying to be Christian and you've never died, been buried internally, and been raised to a new life? Man, the Christian life is hard if you haven't been raised with Christ. So there's the foundational thing and that radical work that's been done. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And that's a press against all the things in chapter 2 that humans are telling the Colossian Christians and the Colossian church that they should be focused on. And, and the point here is, no, focus on the things above where Christ is. That's the important thing. Where Christ is. Set your mind on things that are above. Where Christ is. Not on the things that are on earth. And now here's some of this language. For you have died. And your life is hidden or buried with Christ in God. It's going to be amazing to unpack sometime in February. And then at the beginning of verse 4. Christ is your life. So back to Garrett Dawson's words. God has nothing else to give us than what he gives us in Jesus. But getting Jesus is getting everything, everything we could possibly ever need. And now I want to take you back to verse 7. So, 
walk in him, root into him, be built up in him, be fully established in him, all of that abounding with thanksgiving. That's how we walk through this hard life in Christ alone, fully dependent on him, and not sucked into plausible arguments and good-sounding philosophies that will steer us away from him. Father, thank you for this beautiful portion and for the beautiful one that's coming up next Sunday. How kind of you to tell us these things. How great for you to unpack and say, here are the answers, here are the keys. You don't just tell us, don't do this. You give us these beautiful understandings of what you've done that's completely sufficient for all that we would ever need. Oh God, help us to trust Christ more. Not only for our salvation, but evermore, every day, for our sanctification. And wherever any of us are being deluded by plausible arguments or being taken captive by philosophies and empty deceits and traditions and elementary spirits of the world, please help us. Help us, help us to see that, to turn from that, and to pursue Christ and Christ alone. We pray in his glorious name. Amen.